So we have been in this conversation for several weeks now, um, talking about signs of life. Uh, that's the name I gave to um, this list of vital signs that our district superintendent, Carlo, identified uh, as he traveled among the different churches in our in our uh, conference and based on his experience with churches elsewhere, he identified these six marks, uh, these six identifiers of vital congregations. And he said these are kind of like when you go to the doctor and they tell you your pulse or your, your heart rate, that these are the things you should be watching to try to figure out how healthy your congregation is. And so we've been looking at them, and uh, the ones that he identified are right there on the, the bulletin insert. As you can see, signs of life are engage, welcome, disciple, risk, connect, and call. And we have we have already looked at engage. Engage is this idea that the church is effective when it is outside this building. That that we are in the church in the world. That is when the church is effective. When we're actually out in the workplace or in the school, um, uh, in our neighborhoods, um, maybe in our dining room. Uh, that that is when the church is most effective. And uh, when we when we go out into the world. Our role is not to simply say, let me tell you about Jesus, but to build relationships with people. Jesus tells us that we should build relationships, that uh, when we get to know people, when we get to understand their story, then we should do what we can to bring healing into those situations. And then finally, when when people say, well, what, why are you doing this? What's in it for you? You can tell them about Jesus. He's very modest. He says, just wait, put me at the end. So uh, that's how he tells us how we can engage with people. But what happens is when we do that, sometimes people will say, well, tell me more. Uh, or maybe they'll say, I like what you say, but, but, um, but I have questions. And so the second thing we have to do is we have to welcome. Um, and, uh, what he, what Carlo talks about is how, uh, we, we are depending on somebody because they will say, they will say, I've got questions. I've got things that I'm not sure about. And we can say, well, maybe I know the answer, but sometimes we don't know the answer and we just say, well, look, I don't have the answer, but come and see for yourself. And when that happens, we are counting on our church to be a welcoming church because this person is someone we've got a relationship with. We care about them. We want them to know Jesus the way we know Jesus. And so uh, we're counting on the church to make them feel comfortable. And Jesus agrees with us. Jesus says, I'm on your side in this. And in fact, Jesus says that this is so important that he will treat the way our churches welcome strangers as if they were welcoming himself. And so because of that, the only safe way for a church to welcome people is to be extravagant, to be lavish, to go over the top, to be really a way too much hospitality. And the reason is because we're assuming that it's Jesus that we're welcoming. So we've talked about that. And the problem is that we have blind spots, right? We've been coming to this church for a while. We recognize the church. We know how it works. It seems hospitable enough to us. But we can get fresh eyes by going and visiting another church. We can see uh, our church by going to a different church and then coming here and saying, oh, okay, I see the way churches do that better now. I see the way this church does something. And we could be more or less welcoming in this particular area if we changed in this way. So Jesus tells us to to uh, welcome the stranger. And Carlos says how we welcome people is a sign of congregational vitality. And then we talked about discipling. And discipling is this idea that the, another blind spot churches have is that we we tend to see things from our perspective. You join the church, I say, great, I've always wanted somebody with your skill set, I'm going to plug you in right here and then you can help me. right? But discipling turns that around. It says, what can we as a church help you do? Because ultimately what we want to do as disciples is to become Christ-like, that 
Christian maturity is to become like Christ, that there is a process that we make as disciples, which is to travel the path between come and see all the way to come and die. And the church's role is to help us navigate that path. So that is discipleship. And uh, we, we looked at that, and then last week we talked about uh, how that doesn't happen automatically, that that's, that takes discipline. That's why it's called discipleship. It takes discipline, and we talked about spiritual disciplines. And um, uh, we're going to have a class in September if you want to kind of dig into these. But does anyone remember what the four kind of the key disciplines that people keep coming back to? They are uh, daily time with God doing prayer and Bible reading. You can listen online if you weren't here last week. So uh, prayer with God, a time with God in prayer and Bible reading, time with other Christians in small group context through fellowship, or as we talked about last week, one anothering each other. These 57 things the Bible tells us to do that we should do with one another. And then finally, to practice self-denial and generosity through tithing. So those are kind of the four spiritual practices that people keep coming back to over and over again. So that's discipleship. And that brings us to today's uh, message, because I'm going to jump over risk and connect. Um, I'm coming back to them. Risk, we're going to talk about all during the fall, because it's not just about congregations, it's about us, how we can live lives that are not intimidated. So we're going to be doing that all during the fall. And connect, we're going to come back to in a couple of weeks. But today we're going to talk about call. Uh, Carlo, when, when, when I listen to Carlo talk about call, he means specifically, does your church have processes in place to help people identify a call from God into ordained ministry. And honestly, uh, Carlo and I have different understandings of that because Carlo is a Methodist and I'm a Presbyterian. So I actually consulted with my Methodist colleagues. Carlo's out of town. I consulted with them to make sure that I was safe in saying this. Um, Carlo was talking about a very specific application of a general topic. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about the general topic. And I'll touch on Carlo's specific application. Uh, Carlo is a district superintendent. He's wondering how he's going to find pastors for uh, Barrow, or I mean, not Barrow, Nome, or um, uh, uh, Unalaska. So obviously he's thinking about ministry, but uh, it, is a gen- it is a specific application of the general question about ministry in the church. So that's what we're going to talk to today, because I don't think many of you are called to become the pastor of Unalaska. And if you are, I will pray for you. I, I do. I pray for the pastor of Unalaska. So, um, so, um, so we're going to talk today about call, and um, uh, the reason for that is because let's suppose you've done those things. We talked last week about this this discipline, the, the disciplines we undergo uh, to become Christ-like. That that we we give and we we um, uh, interact with other Christians. We let them tell us what to do. They we let them get into our business and we get into their business. Um, we spend time with God in prayer. And, and reading the Bible, and it takes time, and it takes effort, and it's uh, sometimes maybe emotionally draining to deal with what other people are dealing with, um, to kind of take on that burden ourselves. So why? Why should we do that? What's, what's the payoff? I mean, we get into heaven either way, right? You don't have to do any of this stuff. You still go to heaven if you just trust Jesus to have arranged your entrance, right? That's all you've got to do to get to heaven. So why would you do this? Why would you put yourself through that practice of discipline? What is the payoff? Why would you do that? Because we're motivated by rewards, right? If you're going to get, if you're going to, you know, kind of work extra hard at work, you're going to stay late, do the extra hours. It's because you want the red stapler, right? You think that that you know, 
I'm going to move up, and they're going to give me the red stapler instead of the black one or the beige one, right? So I'm going to move up, and people will know that I am highly valued contributor at this organization. Or maybe we kind of have ambitions above that. We're thinking, I can get the corner office, or I can get a key to the executive washroom. We're motivated by kind of what is the reward that's coming to me if I do the extra work, if I go to the extra effort. What is the reward? And in fact, we see in the Scriptures that this is not a new question. James and John were the first people on record to do this, probably not the first, but the first ones on record. They they grabbed Jesus one day when the other disciples weren't around, and they said, hey, Jesus, come over here. we got somebody we want to talk to you about. We want you to give us top roles in your cabinet. We want to be like the the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Treasury or whatever. We want to be on your right and left hand. We want top roles in your new administration. And Jesus says, it doesn't work like that. Those roles, they don't get handed out the way you think they do. And the twelve, the other twelve, the, the other ten disciples, they find out about this, and they are really, really burning angry at James and John, because uh, not because James and John asked something that was ridiculous, but because James got there, James and John got there first. They they kind of uh, jumped to the head of the line. It's like, hey, James, John, I was hoping for that top job. I wanted to be prime minister. And you're telling me that you're trying to grab it without me being aware of it. So they're upset with him. So Jesus sighs. It doesn't say sigh in the Bible. I'm reading between the lines there. Jesus gives a big heartfelt sigh. And he says, all right, come on, you guys. Let's sit down. Let's talk this over. And he says, here's the deal. We know how this works. The Gentiles, they climb the ladder of power because they want to be served. But he says, it's not like that with you. The kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God, if you want to be high-ranked in the kingdom of God, you must serve. And if you want to be top-ranked, you must be a slave of all. So Jesus says, that's the way it works in the kingdom of God. You can forget everything you know from watching the way the world works, because that's not how it works. And the disciples go, Jesus, that doesn't even make sense. That's ridiculous. Jesus, do you think the president mops the floor in his office and then vacuums the carpet. Do you think the president does that, Jesus? No, of course not. Do you think that the president drives his own car and gets stuck in traffic? No, he has a motorcade. Do you think Jesus, Jesus, do you think the president flies commercial in coach? No, he doesn't. He's got his very own airplane. This is the way the world works, Jesus. You're telling us something that makes no sense. And Jesus says, you're right. That's the way the world works. And the kingdom of God is the opposite. Jesus says, the top of the pyramid in the kingdom of God is the bottom. And we struggle with this. We're just like those first disciples. We say, I don't understand, Jesus. I mean, how does that make any sense? On the one hand, it does make sense, right? On the one hand, it makes perfect sense, right? If Jesus tells us all the time, all through his ministry, he's telling us, the last shall be first. The innocent, I mean, the guilty shall be innocent. That rebels shall be sons and daughters of God. Jesus tells us things that contradict our thinking. But in this area in particular, the thought that the measure of success as a Christian is not the corner office or the red stapler. The measure of success in a Christian is how much you serve. We have trouble with that. So the first item in the outline, success as a Christian is measured by service. 
So we have trouble with it, but fortunately Jesus tells us more. He doesn't leave us with that. And in fact, he gives us a, 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 an institution. He institutes something called the church to help us do it well. And he tells us in his word how we can do it. So what I want to do is I want to look at this passage from the letter to the Ephesians, because in it, Paul answers some of our objections about how we can do what Jesus is teaching us. So um, in this in this passage, um, the way that Ephesians works is that he's been talking about a bunch of stuff, but now he's talking about how the church is not an organization. The church is an organism, that each one of us is a part of the body of Christ. And that, that, uh, the, the, let me just tell you, by the way, you're all allowed to do that. So, Amen. All right. So, so F, FYI, um, so, uh, so, um, so the, the church is not an organization. It is an organism. And we are, we are the organs of that. We are the members, the body parts in the body of Christ. And in fact, that's, um, that's where the word membership comes from. Uh, that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And unfortunately, it's lost a lot of its flavor. But that's what, what he's talking about here. Um, he says, but each of us, starting in verse 7, he says, each of us who is an organ, a, a body part, a member of the body of Christ, each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. What he's doing here is he's drawing on ancient practice. In the ancient world, when you, when you were a general or a, a king and you conquered another country, you won a big battle, what you do is you take captives and then you could either ransom them back or sell them as slaves. Uh, but you got money, you monetized your captives and you also got all the spoils, right? Their weaponry and, you know, if you won a, if you conquered a city, you'd go raid the treasury and so forth. So you basically could, could get stuff as a result of winning a battle. And what you would then do if you were the general of the king is you'd hand that out to the people on your side. You'd say, well, you know, uh, Jill is a great warrior, but she doesn't have a sword. And now I've got a great big heap of swords. So Jill have a sword. Or I'd say somebody else over here is, you know, they're, they're, I'm so glad they're on my team, uh, but they don't have a horse, but now I've got a bunch of horses. So, so the general would apportion the spoils according to what he thought his people needed. And, and that's the picture that, that, um, Paul is drawing, and he says, each of us is given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he says the general is apportioning these gifts that he's won by conquering death. So he says, who descended into the lower parts of the earth and then ascended far above the heaven. So what gifts did he give? If the general is apportioning gifts, what gifts does he give? So in verse 11, he says, the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, this is not the only list of gifts. This is a special list of gifts talking about, again, the organism, the church. He's got a specific thing he's talking about here. There's other passages in Scripture that talk about other gifts. And in fact, if you uh, look through the uh, study guide, there's a lot of questions that will help you kind of find out more about that. But he says there are some particular gifts that are relevant to this conversation, and they are that some would be apostles and prophets. And there's debate do those do those gifts even exist anymore? Are those were those temporary gifts for a particular phase the church went through, or do they still exist? And in any event, they're not anything we need to talk about today. But he talks about evangelists. Evangelists are people who have the the ministry of of, um, of proclaiming the good news about Jesus. So we know about them. You know, the Apostle Paul was one. Billy Graham is one. So uh, people like that they have the the job of telling people 
what we all do on a, on a small basis, they do on a grand basis. So that's an evangelist. And then pastors and teachers. And again, there's another debate here. The language of the Bible here lets us debate whether this is one office or two. Uh, some people say it's a single office, pastor, teacher. Um, and uh, others say, no, it's two different jobs, pastor and teacher. And uh, depending on, on kind of what tradition you come from, uh, you, you kind of align up with one of those views or another. I will tell you, the Presbyterian Church used to kind of be very much in the one-job category. When I was ordained, as recently as that, uh, it was really still kind of viewed as one job, that you were the minister of word and sacrament, and that was kind of the the job of pastor teacher and we're kind of backing away from that so one of the things we've done now is we've kind of said well there's two two real roles here there's and they have some equivalence so i am now called a teaching elder so i'm one of these teachers he's talking about and we have ruling elders whose job is to shepherd the flock to kind of say say what is what are the dangers the flock is facing and how to how to um, take care of the flock so uh, whether that's one job or two it's two different things they do so he says what do they do with these gifts? Well, what they do is they equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what Paul is saying is that the people you see up at the front of the church or at the, the, the congregational meeting, they aren't doing the work of the church. What they're doing is they are outfitters. Like if you're going to climb Denali, you go to an outfitter and you get you know your shoes and your ropes and all that stuff. We are the outfitters who equip you for the work of ministry. So you do the work of ministry in the church. So if you're following along in the outline, shepherds and teachers are outfitters and members are ministers. Or another way I've heard that put is shepherds and teachers are administrators that we, our ministry is toward your ministry. So we are administers and members are ministers. So the work of ministry, the work of the church is done by the members. And then there's this, this whole sentence from um, 11 to 16 is all one sentence. And there's one idea in it, but I'm just going to read it through and, and unpack it. So he says, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. And remember, in the original, it was one sentence. It goes on. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. So a whole lot of words, but the idea isn't really that complicated. What he's saying is, remember, we're an organism. And he's saying Christ is our head. And the picture he's painting, have you ever noticed, uh, our children now have left, but uh, when they're that size, when they're this tall, their head is really big. And then they kind of grow into it. As, as, we, as we increase in size, we, we attain the full stature of our head. We basically, our bodies grow into our heads. And he's saying that's what we have to do as Christians, that we as the body of Christ, we as this organism, have to grow into that. But he says you can't just do it by yourself. You can't just say, I'm going to do that. Because suppose you're the the leg, right? And you grow the way you're supposed to. But the leg next to you doesn't. Okay? You have a problem. He's saying this has to happen in unity. 
that we have to do this all together. If your heart grows but your rib cage doesn't, you've got problems. So he's saying that we collectively, as the body of Christ, must grow together in order to grow into Christ, who is our head. Otherwise, we will always be children. We'd be blown about by doctrine. That means you need better teaching so that you're not blown about by doctrine. You also won't be fooled by crafty schemes. That means you need pastors, people who watch out for wolves. So he says, he says, we need these things. And so the, the third item in the outline, the body can't do without a member. It can't just kind of work by itself and say, well, you know, I don't care about the leg, the other leg, because I need that other leg. And the body must grow to fit the head. So that is the idea here. And the way we do that is by serving in the church. So the application of today's message is serve in the church. And I know many of you do. We just talked about uh, the, the new flashing along the wall there. So many of you do serve in the church. But some of you don't. And we need you. We need you to serve in the church. And really, you need us in a way that may not be clear. And, and I know some of you say, well, I'm so busy. I've got family obligations. I've got, I've got, I've got work obligations. And I understand that. But remember, Jesus is not talking about carving out one section of your life and serving there. Jesus is saying that in the kingdom of God, the top of the pyramid is at the bottom. That the kingdom of God is an upside down place. And this should be a posture for living. You should serve everywhere. You should serve in your family, you should, your approach to, to your relationships in your family should be one of a servant. Your approach to people at work or people at school should be, how can I serve you? But he says, in the church, it is important that you serve in the church as well. So, I have a lot to say here, so I'm going to continue next week. But I want to close with just two thoughts in case you're not able to join us next week. And again, I'm only one of those two jobs. I'm the teacher, right? There's also pastors. We have ruling elders here. So one of their jobs is to outfit you. So if you've got questions about how can I, how can I do this, talk to ruling elders as well as pastors, okay? Because they have the answers just like me. But let me give you a quick illustration, then I'll close with the last two points. About, I don't know, 18 years ago, I went to my pastor in Colorado and I said, you know what? I've been in Bible studies now for five years. I had become a Christian. I had been involved in Bible studies for about five years and I, I was restless and I went to him and I said, look, I've got, I've got a question. I feel like I'm just kind of taking it all in. You know, is there, is there something I'm supposed to do with this Bible knowledge? Because I feel like I've just kind of uh, taken in so much. Five years of, intensive Bible studies. What should I do? Is there is there something that I should be doing in the church? And he said, yeah, I'd like you to lead a Bible study. And I had never thought of it. I still thought of myself as a student. And he said, yeah, but you can still lead. And I said, I would I would think about it, and I would pray about it. And I did, and I, I ended up saying, okay, I would do that. And I led a Bible study, year-long Bible study, um, in the fall. And it was during those Bible studies that people began to say, Luke, maybe you're call is to ordained ministry. So in a sense, the process at that church was what Carlo talked about, the call to ordained ministry. But it was part of a general problem, which is we're called as Christians to serve in the church. So 
the two thoughts I would leave you with, you know, I'm going to talk more about this next week, but very briefly, you don't know where to serve in the church. Let me tell you how you can do this, okay? You can talk to me, you can talk to the ruling elders, but maybe what you need to do is just do it. Just jump in. Just try something at random and see how it works. You know, there's this beautiful picture that's painted in, in the book of Genesis. We like rules and God doesn't. In the book of Genesis, God gives one rule. He says, that tree over there, that one yonder, don't monkey with it. Don't eat the fruit on that tree. That's it. Have fun. Go and subdue the world. You know, have dominion over everything. God's not big on rules. God's not big on, you know, follow this procedure. God says, go create something amazing. So let me encourage you that way. Just jump in. You think that there's a need in the church? Jump in and do it. And you will probably find out like I did when I taught 8th grade Sunday school, I'm not very good at this. This is not my area of gifting. And you know what? When that happens, stop doing it. So those are our last two points. Just do it and stop doing it. Stop doing it because it's not really about the thing you're doing. It's about you developing. It's about you growing and the church growing because you're growing. You know, sometimes churches get into trouble. Some ministry area is no longer making a difference the way it had earlier on in the life of the church. And the church says, we need to discontinue this. But what about Sally Sue? She'll be heartbroken if we discontinue her ministry. Well, we sing history. You know, you don't have to stay in it when you hate it. And maybe you don't, maybe you shouldn't keep doing it if you like it, if it's no longer serving a function in the church. And God says, we have outfitters. We have ruling elders and teaching elders who will help us discern those things. But try something out. If you like it, keep doing it. People will tell you, you know, we need to stop that. Or don't do it because you don't like it. Say, I'm done with this. But the role of Christians is to serve in the church. And the reason for that is the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. The top of the pyramid is at the bottom. Serve in the church. Serve everywhere. But do serve in the church. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for the teaching here because our world teaches us the opposite. Our world teaches us that the top of the pyramid is at the top. And if we climb to the top, we'll get a red stapler or we'll get Air Force One or something in between that appeals to us. Jesus says, no, no, the top is really at the bottom and the one who would be great must be a servant to all. Help us, Lord, to become servants, to have servants' hearts, to be servants in our homes, in our works, in our schools, and in the church. We pray this all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.